Many of the early episodes of this podcast were absolutely amazing, and because we hadn't yet built up a substantial audience, they didn't get the audience they deserved. This is a repost of one of our exceptional earlier episodes. If you haven't heard it before, I am sure you will love it. I'm really interested in other people's worldview, and tools like this make it really easy to model, explain, and elaborate, and then show your worldview. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information, and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from the incredible connector, Jerry Mikalski. Jerry's fascinating career is hard to summarize, but in part, he's played a central role in the emerging digital economy as longtime managing editor of Esther Dyson's Release 1.0 newsletter, and since then has helped leading companies as well as the Institute for the Future as an advisor, facilitator, and speaker with a deep focus on trust and relationships, today also as leader of the Relationship Economy Expedition. In this episode, you will learn about how Jerry uses the brain to collect, connect, and curate all the information has come across for over two decades, being a patent hound, designing from trust, the potential for collective intelligence, and far more. Note that Jerry refers to displays his sharing of the brain. These aren't necessary to follow the episode, and if you would like to see the links, they will be in the show notes. Keep listening to learn from Jerry's valuable insights. Jerry, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show, Thriving on Overload. It is a great pleasure to be here, and it's nice to have a chance to talk with you as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been too long, but I've got to say you're you're certainly one of the very first people that uh, sprung to mind when I was thought about uh, people who are excellent at thriving on overload. I love that. Thank you. So, so we'll try to go through a little in the, the bit of the frame we have around thriving on overload. So, so first around purpose. So, in a world of information, how is it that you have? I suppose, develop the clarity of what it is that, you know, how you filter information or how you find what's relevant to you. I mean, where has that come from for you? I think I can point to two things. One of them is an insight. The other one is an accident. Um, The insight is a long time ago, and both of them happened within a couple of years of each other in the mid-90s when I was a tech industry trends analyst. Uh, not a Wall Street analyst. I don't care what next quarter's earnings are going to be, but but like, is AI going to kill us or save us? That kind of thing. And you know, where should we apply neural networks? That was the thing I was looking into back when. And the thing that was uh, an insight was one day I realized as I, there were a couple briefings I can point to, and I suddenly realized that I didn't like the word consumer. 
And I, my, my boss at the time, I was working for Esther Dyson, who was the doyenne of the tech industry. And I, I said, hey, uh, you know, this word kind of bothers me. And she said, you know, it's just a term of art in the ad business. And my little inner voice, which, which I've learned to listen to a lot, my little inner voice said, hey, no, there's something much more profound going on here. Word consumer is sort of a symptom of a much deeper problem. And so this is my advice to young people. Pay attention to that little, little inner voice because really often it's giving you a very, very good clue. And for me, it gave me the clue that we've consumerized our world. That involved a whole series of breaches of trust. That whole mission took me deep, deep, deep into the notion of trust. And so I have a whole bunch of things I've thought about, which is weirdly about institutional design around trust. Uh, if you wanted to go create a high-performance, high-trust team, I can point you to other people. That's not my issue. But, but really, why did we design our whole world around mistrust is the question. And so, so that was the insight that led to a quest, to a, a path of inquiry for me that, that is rich and live to this day. Then the accident, the serendipity was that back then I was writing Esther's newsletter and I decided to write about bookmark management and mind mapping. And I'm not sure why I picked those two things, uh, but this is back in sort of early days of, of the web and browsers and all that. And back then, even everybody knew that the bookmark feature in your browser sucks and nobody uses it. And so what else might we do to save the breadcrumbs of where we've been? And I'm halfway done writing the issue and I'm, not, I'm unhappy with everything I'm seeing. And this little company had booked an, a, a visit and the, the company had a, a piece of software called The Brain. And I remember making the appointment with a little eye roll going, the brain. And it turns out that this piece of software was exactly how my brain worked. I wrote about them, I, I invited them to our conference, and I started using their software, not knowing that 23 years later I'd still be using their software, really not knowing that 23 years later I would be curating the same data file that I started the very first day I started using it. And so, and so my path to being able to cope with information is highly unusual, arguably unique, um, and has a lot to do with my passion combined with this weird tool that lets me collect up what I see and hang it in the right place, almost like ornaments on a Christmas tree or pieces of a puzzle that, that, that you know, I've got like the world's largest puzzle is how does the world work? And I'm busy snapping little pieces in place, which gives me a little oxytocin hit, which causes the lather, rinse, repeat kind of addiction response to kick in. So the, the time that other people would spend maybe putting a link in a spreadsheet or somewhere, I put uh, adding a link to this one curated mind map. So that's probably a good time to tell us what, what is the brain? So um, the brain is a mind mapping piece of software. The easiest way to show you is probably to share my screen. Uh, and I will do so that some, now. Some people will just be listening to the podcast. So exactly. So we'll, that. we'll do it. We'll do a, I'll do like a football announcer and say, uh, so the, the mind map has a blue background and phrases, words or phrases, mostly phrases linked by lines. And the color scheme that I use is the color scheme that this thing shipped with 23 years ago, a dark blue background with a little bit of fading at each side, a little bit of gradient and words, mostly in white on this dark background, lines in kind of a light blue. And occasionally I use the colors yellow or purple as highlights. So I just took us to a thought because it's called the brain. Every node is called a thought. Um, I just took us to a thought I called lessons from my brain. And under here are a whole bunch of different thoughts. Uh, one of which, one of my favorites, because it's an unusual insight, is that we are an amnesic society. And what I mean by this is that because we're not storing things in a way that we can kind of refer to them uh, with each other, 
we're stupider than we normally would be. We have kind of a cultural amnesia. I think Gore Vidal famously once said uh, that that you know America America is an amnesic nation. We have no memory. We don't care about history, all of that. And I've got this little tool where I've been tracking, for example, you know the Trump apocalypse and. Everything from Trump before he started running for office, all the way through the campaign, all the way through his presidency, all the way through this, the January 6th insurrection and all that, I'm a little bit of a news hound. And so all those events are, are sort of sequen- sequenced in this little memory, except everything you're seeing in this brain I put in by hand, and it's just me with this weird little artifact, and I'm dying to be collaborating with other people to create a shared memory, except the tool doesn't really do shared memory very well. So, so my passion project right now is called Open Global Mind, and we'll get into that. But Open Global Mind is, is, answers the question, what if there was an open collaborative thing like this, but also like Kumu and also like Miro and also like other tools that help you visualize and analyze information? But I, I've been hacking this tool a little bit um, to do things that are different and unusual, like storytelling or gathering evidence or uh, then, then simple things like um, maybe an easy way to demonstrate it if you want to go there is I, I was a tech industry trends analyst and I needed to know who competes with whom, uh, who founded what company, who funded what company, what PR companies represented them and all of that. And I can cruise through that kind of information in this tool easier than any database I've ever seen and easier than anything else. So it just, it just snapped in place at, at the right moment for me. And different people have different representational schemes. We have, you know, my wife has a calendric memory. She says she can, it's like she's flipping through the calendar in her, her calendar in her head. And I don't know what I did last week without the aid of my artificial calendar. This thing happens to really fit how I represent things. So would this, would it be accurate to describe this as a mind map where each of the elements clicks is a hyperlink to another mind map? Sort of. This is actually one big mind map. Uh, so I have we an, an amnesic society under amnesia. So amnesia is under memory. Uh, there's also elective memory loss, but then there's institutionalized amnesia, organ, organizational amnesia, social amnesia. Uh, a whole bunch of different kinds of, of things. And I, apparently Henry Gustav Malayason uh, was studying amnesia. He had a student, students named Brenda Milner and Suzanne Corkin. Uh, oh, uh, Malayason wrote about patient HM who had traumatic brain injury, et cetera, et cetera. So you see that I'm basically making these links, all these little links between the thoughts I put in by hand because these things are related to each other. So so this this gets to a really fundamental point. So let's say you have a new piece of information, you find an article or a resource, how in your mind do you go through the process of working out where that fits in your brain? It's really simple. And before we go forward, I just want to correct myself. Malayson wasn't a scientist. He, in fact, was an accidental research subject because he had a lobotomy and some uh, after traumatic brain injury and was suddenly... Uh, things happened to his memory that changed everything. So here's a couple articles titled The Brain That Changed Everything. So sorry about that. So... Do you see anything in the flow of information in your day that's worth remembering? Yes. Me too. Uh, It turns out that I probably see 50 or 60 things every day that are really worth remembering. And then there's a lot of flotsam and jetsam that I let go by. So the first decision is, is this worth remembering? Second decision is, where would it go? Right? 
So, um, and I'm curious about everything. So I was just in YouTube and right there on the side, there was a, an explanation and, and simulation of the ExxonMobil refinery explosion in Torrance, California in 2015. So I clicked on it and started going there. Um, and then I decided, well, that's kind of interesting. And I've, I'd al- I already had a couple of refinery accidents. I had one and I had an attack, the attack in Saudi Arabia and I had a Texas City one. So I added the animation that I just watched, I just dragged it into my brain, uh, creating this thought in the meantime, under refinery accidents and incidents, which is under, I hope, oil refineries and types of accident. Because that after, after you've done this for a while, so, so just to illustrate, here's types of accident, which is uh, GPS accidents, ice skating falls, roadkill, satellite accidents, wardrobe malfunctions. Remember Janet Jackson? That's an accident, or maybe not. Uh, and then, just to show you how absurd this gets when you start doing it for a long time, one day I realized I had a lot of types of thoughts. So I created an Uber thought called types. So here's uh, types of abuse, types of accident, types of activism, types of addiction, types of advertising, types of age, aircraft, alcohol, anarchy, right? And at this level, it's just kind of fun to wander around. This is not a useful thought for me, but in, we've just gotten to the C's here, types of capital. This is a scroll bar down here. So you can see that there's an awful lot of collections of types, some of which are really interesting, like variants of capitalism is really interesting. How many different ways have people titled capitalism, both destructive capitalism and attempts to reform capitalism? That's all. I collect all that kind of stuff, which means that later when I find a new article about the same thing, I'm actually putting it into the same context and making that part of my brain richer and better. And I publish my brain openly online so anybody can go browse through it. So coming back to, to purpose, what is it that makes something something you want to keep in your brain or, or not? Um, so when I first started using this, I was a tech industry trans analyst. So knowing that, um, that the company Edify, for example, I don't have much around them because they're old, was in interactive voice response and got some money from Greylock Management. And then if I click on Greylock Management, we'll see that they also invested in Dig, Crunch Fund, Coda, and these lists are out of date. I don't, I don't make any claim that these lists are complete, but obviously there was a purpose for my using this tool for my job immediately back in 98, 99, 2000. Then I was like, well, well, I can kind of store everything here. And as I said, I'm on this quest around the word consumer and trust, but I'm curious about everything. So I then started arranging this slowly over time. And there's never been a day when I had a, you know how when you're a blogger or a podcaster, you suddenly realize, oh, I have to have a fresh content for the, for the blog. There's never been a day in my, in my last 23 years when I was like, oh, I must add something to my brain today because there was no reason to. But every day, naturally, 10 to 50 things showed up that were worth remembering, right? And so I would then get into this quick habit. And adding something to, to my brain is really a quick act. It can be under a minute. And I can take something, an article worth remembering, and just drop it in. Um, so over time, because I'm, there's a part of me that's trying to digest how the world works and then transform that into insights. So I have a process I call design from trust that I'm trying to stand up as a practice uh, where the assumption is we, we lost trust in humans, but then we went and designed all of our institutions from a basis of mistrust of the average person. If we flip that equation, what does that look like? Right, and that's all here in the brain. I've got I've got it all cataloged here. I just 
haven't written the book about it. So if do you ever use paper or uh, any other visual tools outside the brain? So I have next to me a little square ruled pad. Uh, I use it less and less and less and less. I can only write on graph on graph paper, on square ruled paper, and only on one side of the page. This is an old habit from 30 years ago. Uh, and I have a little metal clipboard that I love, and only with pen. I can't anymore use pencil. Um, and then I have an iPad, and I use a drawing app on there, et cetera, et cetera. But, but yes, but less and less. So essentially, this is where you capture and organize your thoughts. Exactly. Now, I don't do outlining for an article. Let's say I'm writing a post somewhere. I would, I would have a link to the post here in my brain, but the outline for the post would be in Google Docs or Medium or wherever it is I'm writing the piece. So I don't use the brain for outlining. You easily could, and many, and many people do. I just don't do that partly because I feel like I'm serving two audiences. One is just me and my idiosyncratic use of this tool to remember stuff. But because I've been publishing my brain online for a really long time, at least 15 years, um, I have a second audience, which is whoever the hell trips across this thing and decides to try to use it, for, for which thank you very much. Um, but I want to make this clear enough that people can find their way through and, and run into stuff that's actually very useful to them. So, so I have a thought, people are generally more trustworthy than we think they are, um, which is one of my beliefs. I actually have, the, you know, I have a thought called my beliefs right here. And I think this is really interesting and useful, and I can show you why I think this and who said it. I was at South by Southwest years ago, and Craig Newmark and Jimmy Wales interviewed each other, and they, they said this sentence basically uh, twice within the 90 minutes that they were talking, because both Craigslist and Wikipedia are designed from trust, right? And that, that's, that's what got me started thinking about, about uh, how these things all click together. So I won't claim that this curating has given me the different kinds of ideas that I, that I now have, but it sure as hell helped. And it really helps when I'm trying to remember what was that article I saw like 10 years ago. And, and chances are Google's forgotten about the article because Google loves things that have fresh inbound links, right? PageRank is like, who is linking to this piece? And if the piece wasn't popular or was long ago, it's probably fallen off of Google, Google's memory. Thank God the Internet Archive has the Wayback Machine, because I use that all the time, to basically do CPR on dead web links, right? And so I don't get rid of broken links in my brain, partly because, as Nassim Taleb tells us, we don't hear from the graveyard often enough. And one of the things I can do is somebody shows up and says, hey, we have a cool new group calendaring app. And I can say to them, do you want to see the couple hundred companies that have died trying to do this? <laughs> Like, like, can, can, can I show you who tried and died? And, and maybe we can talk about like, what, what special secret sauce do you have that's going to make, make sure you survive? So just, just want to comment on why you, you know, the point of saying, all right, I'm going to open this up for the whole world to see inside my brain. Um, there was, first, there was no reason not to. I, I, there's, I, can, I can check a little box. So if I, if I click on a link, it gives me a little dialog box. And then over here, there's a little lock symbol. If I click on the lock, it makes this particular thought private. And that means, and, and what I do now and then is I synchronize to the cloud, to the brain's web servers, the brain servers. And uh, wh whenever I sync, that refreshes, and I do that several times a day, that puts a new, you know, the, the most up-to-date version on the cloud. And Anything I marked as private, nobody else gets to see. So it's not 
so I can protect the things that I care to protect, and I don't protect very much. So I'll give a speech inside a company that nobody outside the company is meant to, to, to know about. So that's that thought is private. But the people I meet who are employees of the company, I attach them to the company, and, and I make them you know publicly visible. Nobody needs to know where we met. That's just the, the, that linking thought is, is sort of for me. So, and my notion of the benefits of publishing this publicly have obviously grown over time as this has become a bigger asset, as I've done more thinking about what it means to work like this in public, uh, et cetera. And I'm a little bit vulnerable for doing this. So I do have that thought called my beliefs. And I'm put, you know, you can very easily infer my political stance uh, and a bunch of other things from how I arrange things in my brain. And my intentions there are to actually have conversations with other people who've done something sort of similar, right? So I'm, I'm anxiously looking forward to a conversation with a QAnon fan who's done some curating, not necessarily in the brain, but somewhere, to try to build a factual argument for any piece of what they believe. Like, okay, so pedophiles are in charge of the government. Great, so where, where, where's your evidence? And how does it fit together? Or anti-vaxxers, or, or just conservatives, because I'm more on the liberal side, but I have plenty of critique of liberal beliefs. So I'm using this to sort through, what do I believe? And then not just what do I believe, but why, right? That's wonderful. So you have, uh, of course, shared extensively on social media at various times in various channels over the years. So this is perhaps the biggest sharing, of course, you know, sharing the brain and everything which you're bookmarking. So how does this relate then to your other social sharing? Um, Well, it's funny. Uh, I'm, I'm Twitter user number 509. Uh, Ev Williams is a friend, and a, but a different friend of mine basically said, hey, try this when it was still just an SMS service. And yeah. I don't have a zillion followers, but like I've been on Twitter since it was born, and, other, and I've used other social media, but I have no large audience anyplace. Um, my wife and I recently were doing our wills, and the only asset I have that matters to me when I pass on is this thing. Wow. The, the, the only asset I have that matters is my brain. And kind of easy to fund a server still you know being alive to serve up the brain contents frozen on the day of my death okay but a really interesting question is how might there be other people who then pick up and start using this as a sourdough starter and then keep going and so the project i'm doing now open global mind one small motive for that for that project is to get me out into a more open collaborative tool with other humans doing this so that what I've done is just a starter for some new layer. Think of this as like on top of Wikipedia, but different, right? So tell us about the tool and where that's at and where it's going. So um, OGM, Open Global Mind, isn't actually trying to build a tool. We're trying to first look around for open source products that exist. So there's a thing called GraphViz, which does you know visualization. There's a few other bodies of, of, of open source code. We're also trying to um, motivate existing vendors to write toward each other so that their tools can interoperate and to separate themselves from their proprietary data formats, right? So what if, so almost everybody's seen Minority Report and they have that, you know, Tom Cruise uh, scene where he's doing the, the analysis and flipping things around and isn't, isn't that cool? And some of our geek friends uh, were actually advisors on that movie. So it's a really good simulation. Um, although I'm not a huge fan of VR gloves and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but imagine a conversation between people using different kinds of tools for memory and connecting ideas and building arguments who weren't just trapped in little rectangles with a chat on the side, but instead were in idea land 
kind of like behind your head right now. And who, and, and where, when you showed me something you believed in, in an argument that I really liked, I could grab it and link it into mine and say, for this topic, refer to this thing Ross, just, Ross just did. And, and I already refer to you in my brain. Like I've got a bunch of stuff around you and things you've written in posts. And that's, that's an interesting start. But what does this look like at the next level when we're starting to think together and when we're starting to set up experiments or arguments to try to convince other people to do something, for example, right? Yeah. So well, heading, heading down that road. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, and I sometimes think that the defining theme of where my life is going is collective intelligence. So very That's much fabulous. aligned on that. That's fabulous. And so collective intelligence, collaborative sense-making, hive mind, uh, whatever term you want, that's kind of the, the place where, where we're aiming. And then there's a whole bunch of kind of small subgroups. Like there's a bunch of people who are fans of Settle Custom, which was a, a system developed by Nicholas Luhmann with index cards and, and a, a coding scheme. And they're sort of emulating that on software. Then there's like the Rome cult, the cult of Rome research, which is doing, you know, backlinky outlines. And then there's a bunch of others and none of us are connected to each other. Each of these is like its own frothy little cult and I'm really interested in what does it look like when a, when a heavy Rome user who's done a lot of this work and I talk to one another, and what can we build together? One of the things that hops off for me is actually uh, social bookmarking and delicious uh, and so on, which which it was it was a big loss when that disappeared. So, is there anything now that you feel in terms of social bookmarking or other things that are useful? So I was not a Delicious user because I was already a brain user, but Delicious was the closest thing to the brain without any of the visual aspect, but certainly the social side of it more than the brain and, you know, the shared links, the hashtagging, a bunch of other interesting stuff. And I regret the day Yahoo bought them. And I even more regret the day that they went under and Josh Schachter is now uh, driving sports cars. Uh, and I'm like, dude, like, couldn't you have just funded this thing to stay up as a server? Uh, so a lot of old delicious users wound up on Pinboard, which is a mediocre substitute. Uh, and then I, there's a couple other tools that are kind of picking up some of that, but but don't quite have the magic or the community. Because, for example, you know, C19 as a hashtag on delicious was a rallying cry for historians who cared about the 19th century. And they were using a C19 to like share what they knew in a beautiful way. So I, I totally agree. Like, like Delicious was a huge loss when it went away. And we need a lot more things like that uh, that can play nicely with things like this brain tool, with GraphBiz, with Kumu, uh, you know, with other kinds of tools. And, and, I, and I don't know why more people aren't interested in that sort of that space where we can enrich uh, the way we communicate. Yes, it does seem that there's less happening now than there was, unfortunately. Uh, yes and no, because the little cults that I talked about are new. Like a lot of those are, are kind of new and frothy and interesting. And whether it's personal knowledge management or personal knowledge graphs or network knowledge graphs, or there's a whole bunch of subcategories and I've got most of them named in my brain and collected up. They're all like trying hard to figure this thing out. And many of these people are really good bloggers or chroniclers of their activities on whatever medium you want. So, so if you want to get in those conversations, they're, they're openly available. But you're right. In another way, a lot of this stuff has died off and there isn't a great deal of interest. I will have a look at your brain to find those references. I'm happy to send you links or whatever. A nice thing is that I can send a, a short link, a, 
uh, a shortened link to any particular thought, any specific thought in my brain to anybody. So that's easier than going to jerrysbrain.com, clicking on launch Jerry's brain, and then trying to use the search function, which is okay, but kind of slow. Um, you, you can, you can get around that way, but it's just so much easier if I, if I send you someplace directly in the middle of the brain. Actually, that would be awesome. And also to get the direct links for where you were referring to earlier in the podcast so that, uh, you'll be able to, people can track our conversation then and to delve into what we've just been chatting about. We can add them to the comments. No problem. You are listening to the thriving on overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So what are your information sources? Are there things that you use regularly? How do you choose those sources? Uh, the, what are the, how do you find broader sources beyond that? What is your structure for your, you know, how you find and use your sources? Yeah, um, I'm no scientist or information technologist about this stuff. It's been a pretty organic sort of thing. Um, I love the New York Times because I lived in New York for five years and got really used to it in its writing style. Um, there's been plenty of controversies about its agendas and whatnot over, over like the last couple of election cycles, for example, but I have a, a, you know, a lot of references there and that's the only paper that I will regularly kind of go look at. And I only, only look at it online. I don't, I don't get anything on, delivered on paper anymore at all. Um, and then I subscribe to a bunch of different newsletters, most recently, probably Heather Cox Richardson, the historian who's doing political commentary, uh, no opinion, uh, like uh, th there's a whole bunch of people and, I'll turn them off once they're less relevant for me. So I'll go unsubscribe. And I spend a bunch of time trying to unsubscribe from things because I get way too much mail. And I also know way too many humans who are interesting. And every now and then they'll throw something overboard. But for me, the social network is the source of my best links. Um, also Twitter. I find I, I've, I've been careful about curating who I follow on Twitter. If you treat Twitter like Facebook and you just follow your friends your Twitter feed will be a trash heap. It'll be awful, and you'll be like, God, Twitter's just terrible. But if you're careful about who you follow, then I see world news have hits first in my Twitter feed before CNN gets it, before I hear it anywhere else. Um, so if I happen to be looking over at Twitter and there's an earthquake somewhere or an explosion somewhere or something, it'll, it'll start there. So, so I rely on Twitter for, for contemporary newsy stuff. Um, I rely on my social network, and that's, that's just lots and lots and lots of people and a few newsletters for the bulk of things. And I don't really subscribe to many publications summaries, like ZDNet or The Economist or Financial, whoever. They'll send out, "Hey, here are." I'm like, if there was a good article in on your in your, you know in your in your publication today, I, I will hear about it some other way, right? So, so I don't subscribe to what, because every org is going to send you 20 great things every day and that's just way too much. That, that's overload, right? And, yes. and, and I do get the feeling of overload periodically in doing what I'm doing in particular, I will add, because I've been kind of obsessive about this brain thing and, and, and trying to figure out how to digest the world at the expense of like making a normal income and all those kinds of things. So I'm devoting a lot of time to doing this, even though it's a quick act to add something new to it. And only a couple times have I sat down and thought, oh crap, I'm really, I'm like, I'm having a feeling of overwhelm. 
right? That's happened a couple times like during lockdown, but really only like twice. And at those moments, I was like, I'm just, I've got way too many tabs open that I want to kind of filter into, into my brain. I just came off of three great conversations. I'm kind of done. I'm spent. And, and, and also this little feeling of like, maybe I've just lost a grip on, on, on what's happening in the world. And, uh, I don't usually get to the point of, I should just give up. Like, like I, I, I fall short of, of just, you know, throwing my hands up and just deciding to give up. Um, but trying to be like a little coral polyp on the reef filtering the nutrients that go by is an ongoing act, right? You're, you're sort of always wafting the, with the current, picking up like, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Um, and I wish many more people did this because what I see that's important in Big Cow depends on my filters and my worldview and how I think the world works. And I'm really interested in other people's worldview and the tools like this make it really easy to model, explain, and elaborate, and then show your worldview. And I find that to be really important. Absolutely. And I think you know, you're getting to the essence of what, what this is all about. And I've got to say, if you're only feeling overwhelmed a couple of times a year, then uh, you're doing better than most people. <laughs> well, I think, I think I feel less overwhelmed than most because I have a very productive way to, to put things in a place where I know I'll find them again. And uh, David Allen is the getting things done guy. And he says, what you need to do is you have a whole bunch of open loops in your head. You need to put them in a system that is reliable, where you know, where you don't have this worry that you're going to miss a loop and drop something, right? So he, he helps you design a reliable system. I'm terrible at GTD, although I took a couple of David's workshops. Um, I'm terrible at GTD, but I'm really good at knowing that when I've put something in the brain and then linked it up a little bit thoughtfully, and I forgot, I failed to go through the rest of my logics for when I put things in the brain, um, that I'll find it again, that it's now that it's now more useful than it was before, and that it's in its context. It's like found its little home. So, so going back a moment ago, um, first, is it worth remembering? Second, what is it part of? What does it connect to? And I've got enough things in my brain that there's almost always a place I can go to. So I go there because um, I don't know if you noticed, but I have my screen always set up where the brain is flush right and the browser is flush left, and there's like an inch gap. The only reason I do that is that the easiest way to add something to the brain is to grab the URL, the little icon next to the URL. I grab that and I drag it across into the blue background of the brain. And the brain goes, oh, you're adding a thought. Under the current thought, I should pick up the name of the file and whatever URL you've got and create a new thought. And that's what it does. And 80% of the time, it does a pretty darn good job of that. And I'm, I'm kind of done adding the thought. But the other 20% of the time, I have to go clean it up, edit it, you know, move around the text, which is easy to do. And then I sit down and I think, what else should I connect this to? Because this isn't a hierarchy. The brain is not just like, like top down. It's a multi-directed graph of some sort. I know nothing about graph theory. But the brain doesn't care if I make circular references or if I overlink or whatever. So I'm really interested in connecting things to things that, that, are, that are similar. I'm, I'm a, my brain is a very happy pattern finder. So I do lots and lots of, pa of pattern overmatching and, and linking up, which means then when I come in to find something, I'm like, ah, oh, who is that? Who is that woman who did the paper on whatever? I can usually find my way to it. So you mentioned serendipity before. So how do you, when you're out exploring or finding, is there any way which you make it to those uh, serendipity more likely to happen in what you discover? So serendipity, curiosity, and innovation 
are not things that I worry about. They have no scarcity of any of those. And there's a lot of reasons why. One of them is that I keep a bunch of open channels and I have a bunch of friends who will send me stuff. Another one is that I'm curious about everything and I'm always nosing in, in corners looking for stuff. And years ago, like when I was 35 years old, I think, I finally read my first good history book. And that gave me the nose for, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. History doesn't have to be about, there was this battle on this date and here's who won. You can actually sort of peel back the curtain and see what was going on. And isn't that cool? And that led me to a different kind of form of inquiry. So, so that helps me uh, go through and connect things up. Um, one of the big motivators for me was James Burke's series Connections, which aired on PBS uh, here in the U.S., but then was a book as well. Um, and it was all about serendipity and connections. And so-and-so used limelight, which was made popular in theaters as a way of lighting the stage, and turned it into a signaling system between the semaphore stations. And then, then suddenly you have the Saturn V rocket. Remember that episode? Um, so my mind works a lot like that. And uh, so, and also I've preserved, I think I've successfully preserved kind of a childlike curiosity and openness to sort of finding new stuff. And I'm, I'm busy trying to figure out how other people think, right? I want to know why people voted for Trump. And I don't think that they were all misogynist, racist, homophobic assholes. I think a lot of them, for example, wanted to break the system. They really wanted to shatter a system that was non-functional for them. And they were like, this guy with his like bull in the China shop approach is very likely to break the system enough that we're going to have to get a new system, yeah. right? And that's that's a logic to me. That, that, that like makes a lot of sense because I think the system is broken too. I just would fix it a different way. But but look how far I've gotten, right? <laughs> so do you have any uh, routines or structures during the day or the week or the times of day when you... <laughs> scan sources or to think about things or do deep dives or so this is a great and painful question to answer uh, the thing i should be doing is i should eat the frog as they say every morning so the night before i should set up what the one most important thing i can do the next day is and then just do that and ignore everything else for the first couple hours and my life would be very different had I, had I figured out how to do that. Instead, I start checking, I get try to get through my email, and I start following things. And before you know it, I'm curating my brain, adding stuff in, which is beneficial in the sense of these were all little pieces of the puzzle, um, but not great in the sense of I probably should have sent that email today. So I think I'm overly in dig and click, connect, and weave mode. I, th I think of the brain as sort of a modern loom, and I think mm -hmm. of this as me weaving information together because the little lines between thoughts are very much like warp and weft of a fabric. And uh, there's, I can go, like, weaving is one of the earliest technologies. The only problem is everything that was woven rotted and went away, and the people who made large stone monuments to themselves survived because stone is more durable than fabric, which is a shame. Because because the weaving was really important. It was how was kind of how we stayed alive to carry stuff and to get dressed and you know whatever else. And the pyramids serve no particular useful purpose I can see. So kind of metaphorically, similarly, I'm really interested in how we might together weave what we know together. And so we don't have to keep having the same stupid arguments over and over again. But we can say, hey, you know, and, and I apologize to go back to Trump for a second, but if the American press corps had agreed with some memory device and said, hey, these six lies that he's been saying over and over again, let's all agree that the next time he utters that lie, any one of these six, there's like just like six third rail um, things, we will turn off the camera, stand up and walk out of the room together. Can we just agree on that? Okay, good. 
And I don't know that that would have solved the problem, but it would have been like a little bit of animal animal conditioning to to show Trump that his assumption that the news media could not shut up, shut its eye and leave might be wrong, and it might having a shared memory for journalists might have been a good thing, right? So 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 for me, the idea that we don't have a shared memory makes us much easier to spin, makes us stupider than we actually are as humans, uh, means that we're perfectly happy to go watch TikTok videos till the cows come home because, hey, it's only a minute and it's got some cute music and somebody did something sort of lighthearted. And wait a minute, like we have five major crises in front of us. Wouldn't you like to do something fruitful toward any of them? Or if you don't want to try to fend off crises, wouldn't you like to do something positive that helps people? Right. So you've been implicitly talking about mental models throughout, I suppose, how you're building your way of seeing the world and to be able to uh, build it and collaborate around that and to refine it and make that better. So essentially, a lot of your, your repository is the brain. But it is, in, you know, it is literally not in the software, it is inside your, your mind. So yeah, what's the relationship, I suppose, between your what you are thinking in your mind and your the external resource of the brain or anything else? Or how are you, how are you continually refining and developing? So Farnham Street famously has published a couple of books about mental models, but I've been collecting mental models for yonks. Uh, each so each of these yellow things, I use yellow as an attractor that says, "Hey, there's a lot of stuff under here." So these are OR tools, dynamic programming, linear programming, Monte Carlo, nonlinear programming, queuing theory, etc. Uh, that's just one little subsection of useful thinking frameworks. The, the Kinevin framework is, is in here from Dave Snowden, uh, uh, brainstorming techniques, etc. So, so I have a massive collection of mental models here that aren't curated toward each other, meaning somebody who took this collection and did went down another level with it could actually say, this one is like, this one is like this one. Here's how they're different. Somebody could front end this collection with, if you're stuck in this kind of a situation, here's how to find your way to a useful uh, mental model or thinking framework. I think that it would be like terrific work to do. Um, and then some of these thinking frameworks are kind of proprietary, which I don't like. I don't like good ideas that are locked behind like uh, an IP gate. Apparently, in our culture, smart people write books and they put their best ideas in books. And then we protect books with digital rights management and we make it really hard to use the information in books. And then we expect culture to move forward. Like, seriously, people? I mean, what we want to do is have creative people make a living. Let's solve for that. And let's solve for that around locking away the content. So I'm a huge fan of open source, open content, open as much as you possibly can. Um, there are business models that are successful where much of what is done is, is actually open, and then the secret sauce or the proprietary data is not. And that layer is protected, and that's fine too. But, but we have way too many people who are overprotecting intellectual property, hiding ideas from, from, from one another, uh, when we actually kind of need to work together. So I suppose synthesis is you know, one of the, my key frames you know, through my life. Is saying, okay, bringing together ideas, disparate ideas, and making them one. So the brain shows connections, but in terms of the synth, and you know, there's this vast amount which you cover through your voracious curiosity. So, what is the process where you synthesize, pull things together to, to make sense from these things into coalesce? 
uh, the you know all of this array of different uh, you know resources you've you've discovered. Um, so let me show you maybe two examples. Um, one is the OODA loop. Are you familiar with the, with OODA? Yeah. Okay. So John Boyd, um, Air Force Colonel, a crazy guy who used to call his associates at two a.m. and say, "I've got an idea. We got blah, blah, blah. Um, But he invents this brilliant thing, which was used by Dick Cheney. So Dick Cheney in the in John Boyd's biography, um, the author credits acknowledges Dick Cheney is a big fan of, of Boyd, and so I wrote a piece that I didn't actually publish back in when when John Kerry was running. I wrote neocons are inside the Democrats' OODA loop because everybody on the far right understands OODA, nobody on the left understood it. And when there was swift boating and flip flopping and all the things that that kept John Kerry off balance were being done because this this was political uses of OODA. Right? So that's just one little piece of synthesis that I then, this one I kind of understood by myself and, and, you know, got into it. Um, But then uh, another one is virtuous circles. Come on, little brain. There we go. So one day I was in trying to learn more about Brian Arthur and virtuous circles and all that. And uh, and in doing so in my brain, I suddenly realized that vicious cycles are what happens to everybody else in a virtuous circle. So one of the examples of a virtuous circle is Microsoft bundles up Excel, Word, uh, and Access, or whatever they have as the, their database, and sells that as the office suite. And the other vendors don't really have as good an office suite. And all of a sudden, everybody decides we have to use Microsoft. And there's a, a virtuous cycle that lifts Microsoft to market leadership, which is a vicious cycle for Novell and Lotus and everybody else. So that came to me from sitting here and looking at basically cycles, circles, uh, and making these connections in here. Feedback loops, positive feedback, negative feedback, all of that. So these kind of insights don't happen that often directly while using the brain, but they happen to me all the time because I'm a pattern hound. Uh, and when I get them, I try to represent them in this brain, right? So, so what's interesting is that this brain just isn't just a collection of companies that sell products that have people in them that were funded by venture capital firms that live under categories. There's a piece of my brain where I'm doing that. But I'm also trying to think out loud and think with with whoever else wants to play uh, about all these topics and make sense of the world. So you, you've mentioned you've mentioned that word pattern hound, uh, I think more than once. So what does that mean? What what does how how does you sniff out patterns or find them or articulate them? I think a big piece of pattern recognition is this idea that when you look from one place to another, that there's there's things that are really really parallel to each other that that um, that apply uh, really works for me. So I have a thought that's really important to me. It's contrarians who make or made sense. And I discovered years ago, when I was starting to figure out about trust and all that kind of stuff, I discovered that I had a bunch of heroes. Uh, David Bohm, who invented the dialogue process. Alice Miller, uh, who did the unresolved childhood trauma and a bunch of stuff around family systems thinking. Christopher Alexander, the cranky urban planner and architect. These, are, these people are all on this list. And then I realized one day that all these people shared something that none of them would have called by this name. But that's when I came up with this idea of design from trust. Because I saw the pattern that all of these people were saying, in my discipline, education, architecture, urban planning, finance, self-image, health, whatever, in my discipline, we don't trust humans anymore. So we built these really coercive institutions 
that that control people and really have screwed up. We screwed up how to do these sort of policing, for example, right? Um, and each of these people also then suggested a positive way to fix that. So Christopher Alexander invents pattern languages, which are a way of distilling wisdom in any discipline, so that ordinary muggles can come in and perform much higher levels of design discussion and make more intelligent choices because they have at hand distilled wisdom like light from two sides and make small niches for children and how to site a home on a lot, right? So how do we do this for every, for every domain? Now, this is one of the major patterns that I've found. That's fantastic. And, 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 and I think that the, if, if we all tried to design from trust, a book I need to write, um, we might actually solve a lot of the world's problems because design from trust is cheaper, it reconnects us into community, and it actually seems to solve problems. And design from trust is really, really scary and counterintuitive. Um, I wrote an essay called The Two O Shits, which is in here, which basically says when you hit a system designed from trust, like Wikipedia is designed from trust, your first reaction is, oh shit, this couldn't possibly work. What, what moron invented a system where anyone on earth can come change any page? And then you bounce around in there and try a couple of pages and look at something that you know a lot about, and you're like, the second oh shit is like, oh shit, this seems to be really working. What makes it work? What is the secret sauce here? How do I get more? Right? And that process to me is super fascinating because I think that's the direction we need to go to fix what ails us. Just one thread there was David Bohm's uh, dialogue. Yeah. And, you know, which is a wonderful and often neglected resource, but more broadly around dialogue. I mean, again, I think this is a little implicit in what you've been sharing, but how do you use dialogue? How do you engage in dialogue to be able to enhance your models or other people's models or our collective models? Um, so it's funny because I'm a facilitator. I'm a convener. I, I have uh, meetings that I, that I pull together of different kinds. And Open Global Mind right now is mostly a community of practice that is busy working on these different kinds of things. When I lived in Manhattan, I attended several Bohm dialogue sessions and was really struck by how subtle the whole process is because we would show up, we would take our coats off, we would sit down and start talking. And sort of before we knew it, there was a special something in between us that the, that the place had, had the, the place we were in or the conversation we were having had grown to feel different. Um, and that's a piece of what dialogue is. It's not about trying to convince anybody of anything. It's not group therapy, but it might feel like it. And so I try to incorporate some of that in the, in the conversations that I host. I'm trying to listen with care to what people bring to the conversation, unpack it. I'm probably a little too directive as a facilitator, um, but I feel like this, the safe space in which to say things that matter to you is really important for civilization to move forward and also for companies to make good decisions, to make wiser decisions. And we don't have a lot of those safe spaces. We don't listen well. Another thought I have is that we're in an epidemic of not listening to each other. We're all busy, like ready to say things and not that ready to stop and sit and actually listen to other people. And in fact, one of the safest, easiest ways to bridge the cultural divide is to listen respectfully to other people. It's crazy how well that works. So Bohm is a small piece of that puzzle for me in the middle here. Um, but he was a super, super interesting, interesting fellow. And by the so, way, uh, uh, Bohm's ideas were met with silence and derision is a thought here in my brain. Not by everyone. <laughs> not by everyone. And, 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 and some things, you know, come around later uh, and make a lot of sense later, right? 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's a per- perennials. You you are really an exemplar of thriving on overload. And I think you point a path through what you've done, a unique path, and you've pushed it out further than anyone else. And I, and I really hope your, your project uh, succeeds in being able to provide a more collective frame for this kind of filtering and gathering and sense-making. But is there anything else to share from your insights and experience on how other people can, can learn from that to thrive themselves on overload? I think so, yeah. Um, one, many, many small pieces of advice. One of them is um, you can browse my brain for free at jerrysbrain.com. Uh, I would love for anybody to join the conversation and the actions at openglobalmind.com. Same sort of thing. Um, a thing I think for young people in particular is pay attention to your little inner voice because many people have a lot of trouble finding their purpose in life. What sort of, what is, what is my purpose? And doing stuff without a real purpose is not nearly as much fun as having a purpose. Although sometimes having a purpose is really frustrating because if your purpose is to stop the earth from melting because of climate change, uh, man, we are in a lot of trouble right now around that. And it's unclear how many, I'm in, I'm in Portland, Oregon, where we just had the three hottest days on record the last three days. Today is very, today's normal. It's still still way above normal for for June, uh, you know, uh, June averages. But we just had uh, the world's highest temperature. I mean, Portland's highest temperature ever by a lot, by five or six degrees. Um, so, so find something that irks you, and chances are that irritation is the source of something the world actually needs. Because uh, you know, young 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 children are really brutally frank, but they're but they're they're actually seeing things as they might ought to be. And then we teach them, we basically socialize all that wisdom out of them. One of my beliefs is that we're born pretty connected to the, to the world and to each other and to the, to the earth, uh, and we don't figure out what to do. So uh, so I guess I have a, a lot of things to say to, to younger people, and I have this wish that more people will come forward to collaborate in building up some kind of infrastructure for what we know that we might use together to make better sense of the world, to bridge those divides that are being widened intentionally, so, you know, we, we, we weren't always this far apart on everything. It just, you know, there's, there's kind of a wave where every now and then mostly politicians figure out that if they pump fear and mistrust uh, and undermine facts and science, they can kind of drive a wedge and win some elections. And that's, that's where we are. Uh, and, and I think one way to combat that is by sharing what we know. And another way to combat that is just through listening and safety and has nothing to do with technology. So I don't want to say that if we only all curated the brain, we would solve the world's problems. I actually want to say if we listened respectfully to each other and went out for a beer, we might actually solve more problems. But then we might want to sit down and decide to express what we know, share it better, and build on it. And that's the piece I'm all, I, I'm, I've been working on for a while here. So, uh, Russ, thank you for the, the invitation here. This is I love your questions. Uh, I love your quest. I think thriving on overload is important. My wife just finished writing a book uh, about flux, eight superpowers for thriving in a world of change. Uh, so I think your books are very allied and you'll probably see each other on the road on a book tour. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Jerry. It's been really insightful for speaking again sometime for long. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. 
If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.